Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, January 29th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon, some of the most comfortable underwear I've ever worn, and I'm wearing them right now. Uh, their incredible lineup of colorful, but most importantly, comfortable and naturally antimicrobial wear is incredible. They supposedly eliminate odor, but I have no testimonials to that fact yet. I'm not going to check. <laughs> you shouldn't. Uh, for Inquiring Minds listeners, you can get 20% off anything at MacWeldon.com by using promo code MINDS. Go to MacWeldon.com and use promo code MINDS. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. So we're used to that old trope of the five senses, smell, taste, touch, sight, sound. Wait, before we even get there, hi, it's nice to be in the same room with you. (laughs) Welcome back, Andre. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, for our listeners, I've been traveling a lot in the last month. And uh, I'm sorry I had to miss last week. I got the stomach flu just before boarding a plane to go skiing in Whistler. Uh, and I did get some skiing in, but I also cleaned up a lot of vomit. So on that note, let's talk about the five senses. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the five senses. I experienced all of them uh, over the course of the wow. weekend. Well, I hope you had a good time in Whistler, at least. <laughs> we did have a good time. No, it was, it's always always fun to be. Uh, it's, it's our annual family ski trip, which is always a good time. Um, but yeah, so uh, we don't actually have just five senses. And scientists admit this, and and numerous people agree. There's many more than that. And sense itself is a weird word to define, right? Well, I mean, okay, so why do we say five senses? One, you'd think that you only have five, and that's not true. We have more than five. Uh, If you define a sense as, 
you know, some kind of way of experiencing the outside world with a particular receptor, right? So a particular type of cell that is dedicated to that type of perception. Um, so we have more cells or t- categories of cells than five that actually you know, look at, experience the outside world. But the other part of that is that it it sort of implies that each sense is independent. And that is also not true. In fact, what you see is influenced by what you hear, as we know from the McGurk effect and vice versa, which I think we've already talked about on the show, where, you know, you, you see someone say one syllable and you hear them say another. And in fact, you perceive an even third syllable. It's called the McGurk effect. Um, there's also a ton of ways in which your senses are cross. So the idea that we have five independent senses, which we all learn in kindergarten, is absolutely manifestly false. Okay, well, thank you for that rant. But f- but let me pose a question to you. Can we hack those things that we call senses right now to move beyond what we associate as human limitations? Can we hack our ability to see, to smell, to taste, to even go beyond what our language can describe? Well, Okay, that last part, I'm not sure about, because that was one of the really interesting parts of your interview that I wanted to talk about. But um, of course, we can enhance our senses. I mean, we can put on a pair of goggles and see infrared, right? We can um, look at the way different, different parts of the auditory spectrum and listen to them in different ways, right? We can even turn the firing of brain cells into sound and listen to how cells are communicating. So we can use technology in all kinds of ways to enhance our sensory experience. Well, that's exactly what our guest set out to do. It's science reporter Kara Platoni. She's written a new book, We Have the Technology, which explores the movements of biohackers and scientists as they explore human perception, uh, especially in terms of the limits of human perception. Uh, She's also a lecturer in the UC Berkeley School of Journalism. And she went on a quest uh, to sort of meet these people, learn about their research, and to do everything from like try to discover, do we have a sixth taste sense that we just haven't described yet? Uh, or can we use virtual reality to do things in the real world that we just can't right now? This is so interesting to me, in part because I think often about what it means to be talented, because I teach musicians at the Conservatory of Music, I'm a musician myself, and we hear a lot of talk about talent, you know, is it something that you're just born with as an innate ability? Um, And some people in their definition of talent include this inclination towards something. Um, Like, for example, let's say you have someone who can listen to music and remember tunes much better than someone else. Would that person then have used that natural talent to be a better musician? But the truth truth is that we don't know whether it was something in that child's environment that led them to pay more attention to what they're hearing, that developed this, you know, better ear. We don't know that it was something that they were necessarily, quote unquote, born with, or it was something that their environment created for them. And now we know it's a combination of both. But what she's talking about really is so interesting to me in the sense that now if we can hack the way we experience the world, are we actually going to hack also our conception of talent and whether or not you have it or you're born with it. It's really the last sort of discussion that's uh, almost existential in some way, because we're talking about uh, moving beyond, uh, because there's a lot of uh, this sensory hacking that's about rehabilitation or medical necessity. Uh, but it's really that moving beyond that it like inspires a whole lot of thought. So interesting. That's going to be our interview for this week. But let's talk a little science news. Yeah, so... I can tell you're a little bothered. I am going. I am really pissed. This isn't just bothered. I'm really pissed about the next story. 
Tell me, Kishore, what are you pissed about? Okay. Um, we've talked a lot on this show, show uh, about CRISPR, uh, which is the bacterial immune defense pathway that has been cultivated to edit specific gene sequences, essentially almost like a cut and paste of gene technology. And while this discovery is really sort of ramped up in the last three years, uh, they, there's all sorts of a... Um, of fights right now happening. And we mentioned this in our first show of this year, that there's a coming patent war between MIT and Berkeley over who discovered the in vitro technology first, whether it's a team at Berkeley led by Jennifer Dowda or a team at MIT led by Feng Zhang. A little more than a week ago, an article by Eric Lander appeared in the journal Cell recounting the history of CRISPR. Now, Eric is the head of the Broad Institute at MIT. He's one of the most influential biologists in the world. He's one of the best scientific storytellers ever. He helped spearhead um, a lot of the aspects of the Human Genome Project and apply that genetic, the genomic information to our uh, treatment and study of disease. So he's one of the most cited biologists in all the world. But he wrote this article basically saying, here's the history of CRISPR. Here's how, you know, different groups around the world developed aspects of the technology to come together. Well, let's just say it was a heaping load of bullshit. Like, there is a lot of factual information in it that is well disputed. Wait, so is he? are you saying that there are things that he said that were actually incorrect? Or were there errors primarily of omission? So, both. Jennifer Doudna indicated in a comment on PubMed that she wasn't checked uh, with in terms of the factual information in the article. Emmanuel Charpentier said the same things, and also in a comment on PubMed, which you can go read yourself. Uh, George Church indicated to a number of reporters that he saw some factual inconsistencies in the work. Now, Eric Lander has since sort of fired back and indicated that he did check with them and he had email correspondence to, uh, uh, to say that, but uh, they claim that that correspondence did not give them access to the full text of the article, so they couldn't really check it. Uh, so it's well in dispute the nature of the factual information in this article in a way that gives me a whole lot of pros. And then secondly, he's the head of the Broad Institute. And I'm not saying that he did this to rewrite history ahead of the patent ruling, but you have to admit the timing is really fucking odd to put this out three months ahead of the ruling. It just seems bizarre at best. And at worst, uh, like, who knows? And also, The Cell published this without releasing any sort of conflict of interest, and they're the ones I hold most responsible. It's just totally unacceptable. Am I wrong to be this mad about it? Well, if what you say is really... I mean, I, I guess I'm still wondering to what extent this is... Like just how just how factually inaccurate or it is, or whether this is there's some room for interpretation here, because we know, look, there are massive teams of scientists that are involved in these big discoveries. You know, how do we know who came up with the idea first? A lot of it's is you know he said she said, especially in this case, and maybe you know maybe it was a grad student that came up with some seminal idea that there's you know a, what I mean? Like this is, is common in science. There's a lot of criticism that. None of those people got any reference in this either. It was only PIs that were largely referenced in terms of doing the work, which we know to be factually inaccurate. That's just not how it works. But that's how science has been reported for centuries, right? For sure. I don't know if it's malicious. It's hard to like peer into, you know, Lander's brain and see that. I sort of doubt it. Like I 
I, I just can't imagine that given who he is and what he's meant for science. Like he helped found the Innocence Project, which has exonerated you know, hundreds of people on death row by using DNA testing, like there is definitely evidence to say that Eric Lander is not a bad dude. But if this is the tone that we're leading off this patent war with, it's going to get really ugly. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest science stories of 2016, if not 17. And I can't help but um, sort of shed a tear for what this really represents. And I think on some level, it represents a whole slew of scientists airing their dirty laundry, which is never that much fun to see. And then it's also, you know, portends what I could be a stunting of the actual work. Well, and to what extent is it getting ugly now in this way, uh, attributable to the fact that the way that we communicate science has changed? So, you know, you put this, you know, you, you publish this article and you can get comments immediately Whereas in the past, like, let's let's talk about co-discovery of he the structure of DNA. published it in Cell, though. No, I know, I know. But let's talk about, you know, Francis Crick and James Watson, who are also under fire for, you know, not necessarily yeah. giving all the attributions that were necessarily out there. And maybe they didn't cause such a huge kerfuffle in the moment because you didn't have, you know, Rosalind Franklin arguing immediately within the comment section, you know, of, of the publication. So is this just the same thing that we've seen in science for decades? Yeah. Or is this Does amplified? that make it okay? <laughs> no, of course not. Of course okay, not. Actually, a lot of people have, have uh, critiqued Eric as, as Rosalind Franklining Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who were the, the who's the other team. I don't quite see it that way. That's not my take. But I understand why people feel that way. It's just... There's so much money at stake. There's so much money at stake. And I think it goes to the heart of what is really distressing to me about this is that there is so much money at stake. Maybe there shouldn't be this much money at stake. So you're saying we should, you know, any discoveries that are made in a scientific setting should not lead to profit for those scientists, but no. just go into the public. That's talk? not that's not what I'm saying. But I think it's deeply concerning that the uh, integrity of science, which is deeply valued by our community, uh, can be undermined so quickly with this much money at stake and what the privatization of the profits from publicly funded research, uh, the ramifications are of to our community, are is, is not well discussed. This is not a topic we hear often in the public sector. Well, this also brings into mind the debate about peer review and whether we should completely throw that out the window because I obviously... I think the cell did because they didn't actually like, you know, Well, introduce... they must have sent it out for review. But they didn't release any conflict of interest information here. He's the head of the Broad Institute and they have a patent filing. I actually place a lot more blame on them than I do Lander. Okay, I'll stop being so mad about this. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for sharing your perspective. <laughs> So while I calm down, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Kara Platoni. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, music, photography as you want at any time, from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, the Culinary Institute of America, and this very podcast. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. 
You could sign up and watch The Inexplicable Universe, for example, Unsolved Mysteries, presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson, plus hundreds of other courses for free right now. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Kara Platoni, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's start with perception, which is a, let's agree, it's a massive topic to talk about human perception. But when I think about it to a certain extent, you know, the sky is blue, strawberries are sweet, sandpaper is rough. So in some sense, we we share this sort of common language and understanding of what human perception is. You look at it through a similar lens, but you posit something slightly different as an introduction to this, to this story. Yeah. So uh, basically the idea of no one shared reality, or at least no one shared experience of the world, right? And I I mean, I agree with you. I think things are similar enough that we can all kind of get along. We can interact, we can communicate. We know what... I know what you mean when you say I'm turning left or that's red, right? Or at least if it's different, we'll never know, right? But what I mean is um, your brain... Well, your brain doesn't interact directly with the outside world, right? It has to take all of this information that's delivered through your senses and construct some sort of linear, coherent experience for you. Because there's more information out there than you need. There's more than you can constructively use. You'd be in like a perpetual daze if you had to process everything that was actually there, right? And your construction and my construction are different. They're probably different in these subtle ways. And, And the reasons are... Okay, we have different genetics, right, which has uh, affected the way our body is constructed. We've had different life experiences that taught us how to pay attention to information in different ways. And those turn out to be really, really important. How much does language play a factor in just sort of limiting the ability to share that reality together? I think it's actually really important. Um, So one of my chapters is about, can you taste something that you don't have a word for, right? In other words, do you need... That's like an existential question. It's totally an existential question. Did you ever, when you were a kid, did you ever like blow your own mind by being like, what if there was a new color? What would that be, <laughs> right? It's the same question. It's exactly the same question. And I actually, there was a cool article in The Atlantic the other week about somebody who's written a book about emotion. Same question with emotion. Can you have a feeling if your culture doesn't have a word for that feeling, right? And and the question isn't really like, um, can it happen can my tongue pick up on this 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 taste that might be in the food? Can I have this emotional experience? The question is, do you know how to name it, right? Can you say, that is a thing that I recognize, I know what it is, I can communicate that idea to others, right? So to make to take this really abstract, wild idea and boil it down, the reason I was doing this was because, um, well, basically, I went on a quest. I joined in a quest. A that, quest? A quest. Usually a quest starts with a calling. Yeah. Well, okay. So my my calling was to run around and taste weird things. Does that count? Yeah, I think that counts. Okay. (laughs) So so basically, you and I probably went to elementary school about the same time. And uh, back in the last century, there were four basic tastes, right? There was salty, sweet, sour, bitter. And it's not quite like that now, but Yeah. yeah. Right. And of course, they taught us this whole thing where like the, they're, they're in different places on the tongue, totally debunked, right? Now, scientists agree that there are five. There's this concept of umami or savory, uh, which uh, came along. Actually, it had existed in Japan for a century. It was accepted in the Western world uh, around the turn of the century, right? And that unleashed this hunt. Okay, if there are five, why not six or seven or, or more, right? So my quest, 
I'm going to call it a quest, was to go around and taste all of the contenders for the sixth taste. Oh, the sixth taste? Like, yeah. what kind of stuff are we talking about? Okay, so the first one I went to taste, I went to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and their candidate is fat. Like raw fat? Well, okay, so they don't like, they don't give you bacon, like raw bacon or something like that, right? But, um, so actually, if you can mentally dissociate the idea of fat from the idea of meat, what they actually want to see is, is if you can taste fatty acids, linoleic acids specifically, right? And the reason people think our bodies should be able to sense this is because we need it. It's pretty, it's a, it's a thing that your brain and your body need uh, to build tissue. So, okay, um... So they want to see if we can taste fat. And the way they're testing this is they're crowdsourcing it. So anybody who goes to the museum right now, if you want, you can, first of all, you have to be okay with donating your DNA to science. So they take a, a swab. They cheek swab you. They cheek swab you because they want to see if there's a genetic difference between people who can perceive it or not. And then you go through this test where they give you these little kind of like a gel wafers that are like, if you have ever used one of those melt away breath strips. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's like the same thing, except instead of having mouthwash in it, it has this linoleic fatty acid. That sounds gross. It, well, okay. So here's the thing. They want to find out if it's gross, if you can taste it at all. And when I went into this thing, I thought maybe I will taste nothing. Maybe I've come here on a wild goose chase and I'm going to be very sadly disappointed. And they give you all of these strips and each one has a different amount of the acid in it. So you don't know how strong the taste is going to be. And I ate it and I totally agree with you. It actually was gross. Not not in a bacon way. It, not that bacon is gross. Uh, it didn't taste like bacon at all. It didn't taste like gravy or ice cream or any of the things I would associate with fat. And they wanted me to describe it because what they're after is a word that will describe how fat tastes. And this turned out to be really hard. My first impulse was to say that it was bitter, but that's already one of the five and then my next impulse was sour, but that's acid, right? Another thing. Yeah. Is another, so, so it turns out that this, this language problem is actually one of the things that's causing this big debate about is there another taste? And the argument against it is, well, if it existed, if it was a universal experience, if everybody could sense it, every culture would have built a word for it, the way every culture built a word for sweet or for bitter or for salt. So acknowledging that language can be a limitation here and our ability to name it can perception actually evolve? I mean, like over time, it's evolved as we've sort of progressed as as sort of human species. But can it actually evolve in the context of of sort of modern society? Well, I I think so because you know, um, t- twenty years ago, nobody in the United States could taste umami. Nobody had an idea of what that was. Oh, now right? it's everywhere. Now it's everywhere. Now there's like a umami burger, and in Oakland we have a shop called Umami Mart's. Um, it's actually kind of cool and and trendy uh, to to be into savory foods, um, and that is because a lot of people say because we learned a word for it, we learned the concept for it, we learned to pick it out in our food, we learned to appreciate it and to like it. So one of the really cool debates going on right now is there's actually for bitter, there's actually about 25 different receptors for bitter on the tongue, which means theoretically there are 25 different ways to taste bitter. And one of the things I talked to uh, some really cool chefs and food scientists and they said, what if you could learn to discriminate between those 25 tastes, you know? Like what if the taste of the bitterness of alcohol was different than the bitterness of caffeine and it was different than the bitterness of quinine? And And not just fake your way through it like in a a wine tasting, like I do. But (laughs) actual real differentiation. And are they actually able to quantify this now? Because for so long, elements of this perception was done on a behavioral level. Yeah, so this is like the um, huge sea change that's happened in this research. I should say, this book 
was kind of vast. Uh, when I when I set out to do it, I don't think I realized how much scientific turf I was going to cover. Perception covers biochemistry, psychology, neuroscience. When we start talking about devices that affect the brain, we're talking about mechanical engineering, biohacking, electrical engineering, all, all kinds of, of stuff, right? But the, the big change that's happened is studying perception used to be a behavioral scientist. It was, you know, kind of the turf of psychologists. So you could study human behavior. You would see what a person did, right? So with food, you would give them food. Did they, did they like it? Did they eat more of it? How did they behave? And that's still happening. Yeah, absolutely, right? But uh, over the last 20 years or so, it's become more of a biochemical science. Uh, so with taste, they're actually kind of researching more of what happens on the tongue. You know, the moment that that chemical comes along and locks into the tongue, it's less about that moment of uh, realization in the brain. Aha, this is what I'm perceiving. This is the experience I'm having. And that's a totally different scientific toolkit, totally different set of researchers. It's a big change. We are not a patient bunch, human beings, <laughs> let's just say. So the idea of us waiting around for science to catch up to this you know, weird lump of gray matter that's going on and understanding perception is not how it works. <laughs> and you devote a whole lot of time in this book tracking down folks that are moving beyond the evolution. Yes. They're yes. they're taking their fate into their own hands. Or they're trying to. I mean, well, they're definitely taking their fate into their own hands, but they're trying to hurry up evolution. They are not patient at all. So you're talking about biohackers and yeah, grinders, right? Just hackers that are just pushing the limits of what perception can be mm -hmm. around a number of senses. And before we get to a couple stories, I wanted to get your general reaction when you met a lot of these people that were doing things like wearing a prosthetic, you know, limb or using a augmented eyeball, if you will. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I met um, uh, I met uh, Rob Spence, otherwise known as Iborg, who has a camera built into his eye. I met the uh, people from Grindhouse Wetware, who are biohackers who are building sensory uh, gadgets for themselves. Uh, lots. Of, I, I met a surgeon who does robotic surgeries. Uh, my impression is that these are smart people, smart, curious people. And some of them are risk takers doing stuff I would not do. I was offered various implants along the way and I remain unimplanted. Um, yes, they are taking health risks, some of them, um, because they are frustrated. They are frustrated with the limits of their own bodies and they are frustrated with what industry will provide for them and what medicine will provide for them. But yeah, I, I one of the things... I don't like the idea of people saying, "Oh, these guys are weirdos" or or something like that. They're they're not. They're they're smart. They're super smart. In a sense, you kind of posit them as explorers, twenty first century explorers yeah. in a way. Except they're really pushing boundaries of of human perception more so than you know geographical boundaries or the limits of of training. In, in a sense that it's not so different than the elite athlete that is is playing with his own you know, biochemistry through weird diets and exercise regimens. Yeah. So, okay. So I kind of think a lot of people who are doing this are just, they're the new psychonaut, you know, they want to explore what the mind can do, what you can experience. Uh, you know, certainly earlier generations did this with drugs. Uh, uh, lots of people kind of explore what the mind can do through storytelling. It's not uh, a new thing to to want to be different than yourself or to experience things you couldn't normally experience. And and yeah, towards the end of the book, I kind of drive towards this big, I don't know, rallying cry at the end, where I say, 
how different is this than all of the, the things that drive us to improve the body and the brain anyway, right? Like education is about changing what your mind can do. Um, uh, sports and fitness are about changing what your body can do. And, and one of the things that biohackers would say to me um, that I really thought was resonant was they would say, how can somebody else tell you what to do with your own body or your own mind? How can tell you, somebody tell you when to stop improving? So there's actually a really good ethical question that I want to come back to because yeah. I want to first like list out some of the stories you you lay out yeah. in, in the book to illustrate this. And they sort of fell into a couple categories, rough categories in my mind. There was a number of people that were trying to restore that's an inarticulate way of saying they're trying to either restore a sense or or kind of account for some sort of disease that's taken away um, the ability to utilize a thing like a, an artificial limb. And I was wondering if you could take us into one of those examples. Sure, sure. Yeah. So you're so you're right. There is this kind of um, uh, divergence of interests in this community of people who are exploring sensory perception. And I should say these people are not necessarily all talking to one another. They don't know each other. I sometimes kind of felt like the plague rat running around between different people's labs and being like, uh, the biohackers told me this and the, the neuroscientists told me that, right? But okay. So on the, the university research side, the medical research side, the for-profit industry side, it, you're right. They're mostly assistive devices. Uh, so one of my favorite things to do uh, in this book was I got to hang out with this guy, Dean Lloyd, who's an attorney here in the Bay Area. And he is one of the first people on the planet who has ever relearned how to see. He relearned how he to relearned see. how to see. Isn't that kind of an amazing concept, right? Because it, first of all, it says that vision is learned. It's not something that just happens. You just open your eyes and naturally it's there, right? You learn how to process that visual information. You learn what images mean. That is a bold statement because it, it like when you think about that a little bit like you could see how you try to apply that to other species yeah. Yeah. and you think about is is vision learned in birds is it learned in uh, other creatures but we won't go down that path right, okay yet. so there's there's but let's talk about dean itself like, right, right, what okay happened so there's to like dean? a there's a biological function and there's kind of like an interpretive function right which is i th i think where i'm heading with this so, okay so what happened to dean was he was born with sight and he lost it as an adult he developed a disease called retinitis pigmentosa so it causes you to lose uh, your vision. And for 17 years, he was essentially blind. He could tell the difference between a bright light shining in his eye and, and that light not being there. And that's about it. And then he volunteered to be part of the clinical trial for a, a retinal implant called the Argus II. It's made by this company called Second Sight that's down uh, in the Los Angeles area. And so this is actually an implant. It's inside his eye. It sits at the back of his eye. And what happens is he wears a set of uh, glasses with a video camera set over the bridge of his nose. Those glasses take images. They transform them into electrical impulses. Those are carried into the implant inside his eye. Those fire and they stimulate the surviving uh, photoreceptors he still has at the back of his eye. That information travels to his brain. It processes vision. But it's not the vision he had before. It's not what you and I might think of as vision. Of course. I mean, that would be an amazing feat to yes. restore exactly how it was. Like, what kind of stuff does he see? So his perception of object, he doesn't see three-dimensional objects. He doesn't sh see much in the way of shading. He sees color, but it's just random flashes of color has nothing to do with what he's looking at. What he sees, the way the world looks to him is it's flashes of light, just these bursts of light, and they indicate contrast points between dark and light. So, for example, when we were walking down the street to, together, uh, he walks with a cane um, and, and these glasses, and he can tell 
where the sidewalk meets the street because the white and the dark together produce these flashes of light. He could tell, uh, he could see when oncoming traffic was approaching, not because he could see the shape of a car, but because he could see a reflective glint off the windshield. Um, when he was looking at me, he couldn't really see me. So like people, biological matter, uh, d we don't reflect, right? But one day he was looking at me and he says, your eyes are glowing. So what does that mean, right? And I was trying to figure it out. And finally, we realized it was my glasses. Oh, there's a reflection. He's off getting of them. a reflection off my glasses, right? So, so that's how the world looks to him. But it is functional vision to him, right? He can use it to walk around. He can use it to judge what objects are in front of him. We were standing in the kitchen, and he could say, "Okay, there's there's the coffee pot. Here's the glass." But they didn't just turn on this implant. He was like, "Oh, I can see the end of the sidewalk yeah. over there." So, talk about that. What that learning process looked yeah, like? Yeah. So he actually had to to calibrate it. Um, so he has the implant, and then it's kind of a process of relearning how to calibrate what he's looking at with other cues. So for example, um, one of the things that they send people home with, or they did when he was in the clinical tester phase, is these big, uh, imagine like a big white poster board with uh, a black fuzzy geometric shape glued on it, like a grid or a square or you know, something, some oblong. And because it's fuzzy, he can touch it while he's looking at it. And he can use that touch sensation to calibrate what he's seeing. Oh, right? wow. Yeah, it's amazing. So he did it for me a few, for a few times. So we'd be looking at things like, um, you know, some kind of four-sided polygon. And he sees kind of a flash at the corners of the polygon, and he touches it. And so while he's doing that, he can say, okay, I think it's a rectangle. It's like a simplified way like TVs do color balancing or like uh, the black and white balance that you yeah. can do the test when you set up a TV for the first time. And they do this for like, um, they would do letters on a computer screen. So for example, it, looking at the letter E, he would see it as a flash where this, the horizontal and the vertical bars of the E meet. And that's how he could see a really big letter on a computer screen. So how long did it take for him to actually become, you know, functional is a weird word here, but how long before he could have utility with this? I think it was a, a matter of months, and and in his case wow, it was that's yeah. Fast. He well, in his case it was a little uh, complicated because um, the implant wasn't tacked close enough to the back of his eye, so he had to have a second surgery, and that improved it. But one of the things to note about these devices is they're still really, in some ways, quite simple. So there are sixty electrodes in this array that's in his eye and only 52 of his work. So it's like 52 pixels of information. So you can kind of imagine the, the limitations of that, right? But it is enough that the brain, because it's so extraordinarily plastic, can relearn how to use minimal information. And in his case, and in the case of other people with retinitis pigmentosa, they had vision before. So they have a memory of what things should look like. They have a memory of what color is. They have these ideas. It would probably be a very different experience for somebody to who had never had sight to have some other kind of prosthetic that wouldn't be in their eye, that would be higher up the visual pathway actually in the brain, sending them information. They would be interpreting it without this background information that he has, right? But that's an example of a, of a, an assistive technology, right? For somebody with a medical need, when I was there, uh, which was, I'm trying to think, I think the last time I was in the office of the company that makes these things, they had just gone public. So they had announced that people could actually buy this uh, and, and, and it went on the market. And one of my amazing memories of this company is they had this just huge office space full of empty desks and chairs because they were planning to grow. They know that there is a market that's out there for people. And their next step 
is to think about expanding it to people who have other conditions. So age-related macular degeneration is another one that's very common. Um, so they're thinking about how can we make this device useful to more people? It's still in the assistance realm because there's a whole other category where we're talking about augmentation. Yes. Really, where we can start talking about, well, uh, I was at a scientific conference last year where they deployed one of those um, contact lens implants that allow you to like almost zoom in, if you will, magnify. Oh, you saw it. You saw it. the zoom lens. I did. Neat. Well, I mean, I saw a presentation on it. Neat. They didn't hand it out for me to try out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was wondering if you could take us into some of those examples of augmentation, which is a whole different quality here because you're talking about bringing in abilities, right. if you will, that didn't exist beforehand. Right. So, okay. So the assistive devices that are being developed now are usually super invasive. They, they carry high risk. You have to have a surgery. So there's a risk of, uh, you know, infection. There's a risk that it won't work. Um, and, and, and there's a, there's a reason why, um, you know, the, the clinical trial uh, base is for people who really have no other alternative. There's usually right? a medical necessity. At right. Yeah. And you know, doctors, they take the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. They're not going to give you a, a, a treatment that might be worse than the disease, right? But there are these other people who are saying, okay, what if I could be more than I am? What if I could perceive more than I am? What if I could do more than I am? And this is where we kind of get into the realm of wearable devices that you can take off, right? Way less risky, cheaper, um, mostly a lot of these things have been developed for entertainment, gaming, uh, these other kinds of platforms like this, uh, or, uh, for augmented reality. So just, uh, you know, for anybody who wants a refresher, augmented reality, I'm talking about things like smart glasses, smart washes, smart wristband, smart fabric, smart, 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 smart rings, smart, smart, smart stuff, smart, smart. very smart yeah. stuff, very smart stuff. And the, and the reason it's smart arguably, is uh, because it's feeding you information you wouldn't otherwise have, right? Um, and it's not only doing that. I mean, we, we all probably have a cell phone or computer that feeds us information we wouldn't otherwise have. But the whole idea is that it's doing this in this subtle way uh, where you don't have to stop what you're doing and take a break. It's integrated into your normal sort of perception landscape. Right, exactly. So it's actually integrated right into your vision because it's it's over your eye or it's integrated right into your sense of touch because you're wearing a smartwatch and it's tapping you or it's doing something like that, right? Uh, so I, I went to meet people who were developing augmented reality devices. I was especially interested in people who are trying to augment the senses of touch, taste, and smell because mostly what we hear about is Google Glass and smart smart spectacle sort of things, right? Which have to do with vision, and sometimes with hearing. Uh, so I went to uh, I went to meet with uh, Adrian David Chiak, who's a researcher in London who does kind of cool things with touch, taste, and smell at a distance. And uh, basically, what he's doing is the hardest stuff. What he told me was it's really easy to convey video and, and audio by a computer. Computers are built to do that. How do you convey a smell at a distance, right? When you say distance, what are we talking about? So we're talking about, I mean, the distances he's talking about are the other side of the planet. He's talking about how could you communicate uh, a scent or a, a feeling, a taste, an, an emotional state to somebody that you love who's far away. He is really interested in the idea that like romantic partners, friends, families are all broken up by kind of the modern work age. People travel a lot. Parents are separated from their kids. People are separated from their spouse. And he works in this kind of very sweet, nostalgic wor world of trying to share experiences at a distance. So for example, one of his first um, projects that he did uh, was to enable people to touch a pet from far away. 
So he did this with a chicken. He made a special jacket <laughs> that the chicken wore. A petting chicken. <laughs> a petting okay. chicken. And um, and then you would have kind of a stuffed chicken wherever you were that was wearing also this haptically enabled jacket. And you would hug it. And then the hug would travel to the the vest that the real life chicken was wearing. And the way they tested this to see if the chicken actually liked it was the chicken could freely walk between two different pens. And in one pen, he would get hugged. And in the other pen, he wouldn't get hugged. And he spent more time in the pen where he got hugged. So he liked so. So then he built on this an idea. He said, "What if parents could um, give their children a good night hug at a distance if they, you know, oh, if they're at work, they have sweet, conference yeah. or something like that?" So he he made something called the huggy pajama, and it's the same thing. So you can you hug your kid virtually, and then he um, has made. Um, when I was there, they had me try on all of these prototypes of rings that they were developing for this project called Ring You because it's British, right? So Ring You. I, I will ring you later. Mm-hmm. But the idea is it's almost like um, a, a mood ring that sends a hug. So you're wearing the ring and then your partner is wearing the ring and you press the little jewel in the top of the ring and it squeezes their finger. And he said, this is discreet. It's socially acceptable. It's not like wearing glasses over your eyes or some big nerdy device, but it's a way to communicate touch and a feeling state at a distance so to a certain extent on a on the surface i could see the cynic in me being saying like this seems like a flight of fancy it's a little superficial and hokey to a certain extent when you actually talk to the people doing this is that the the feeling you got from exploring the products or is there something really serious here the feeling i got from augmented reality well there are a couple feelings one is that everything is very very early this is this is new right so one of the people that i talked to the guy who runs the augmented world expert uh, sorry the augmented world expo ori inbar who knows everything about this field is he said you know we're kind of like where film was in the early 1900s. We haven't developed a language of augmented reality. We don't know, really know what the techniques are going to be to convey this kind of experience, um, which I thought was a good point. He said, you know, in film, it, it used to be that they filmed um, movies like a theater play. You know, it, it, there was a stage and uh, people stayed in the same place and there were curtains framing the action. And he said they hadn't developed the pan and the zoom and all of these techniques, the idea of going outside, all of these other things that made film uh, a, a thing that could transport you to another world. And he said, that's where we are now, right? And then the other thing that people said to me is some of these senses are really hard. So for example, if you're going to convey something through a ring, or if you're going to convey one of the other things uh, Chiox Lab does is they convey smell at a distance. So you, like, you plug in a little device to your phone and you can convey a scent to somebody. Or they have a they have a kissing device where it actually is like lips that you put on your phone, then you video conference with the person you want to kiss and you lean into it and it haptically conveys the <laughs> I don't mean to kiss. laugh, but it is kind of silly. It's wild, right? Yeah. But he's, he's doing it for a point, right? The, these are hard because the, both people have to have the right gear, it's 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 hard to there's do. multiple sensory uh, functions at play too it's not like you can just have one interaction that focuses on one area because we use visual cues right. for some of those things there's um there's sound there's a whole like sort of gambit and these are really i mean we're using the word sense a lot here right to really describe what's a pretty complicated set of reactions that aren't necessarily perfectly understood quantitatively right so, okay, so you made me think of, of two things. So, so, so one is people will acknowledge it's early days. We haven't quite figured out what we're going to do. Um, people are coming up with some very clever ways that you don't have to wear gear. They view gear as kind of being inhibitory. It's yeah. embarrassing. It's hard to put on. doesn't fit. looks weird. Can, it can be off-putting to other people. One of the projects I went to see is it, it doesn't 
it doesn't seem to exist anymore, was at Disney Research, where they were using air to convey touch at a distance. So the idea is you walk into a room and the air hits you in a certain way. And they would do um, things like, uh, for example, they would create the illusion that a butterfly was landing on your palm. They would have this photo projector beaming the image of a butterfly flapping its wings. And you would put your hand under it, and these puffs of air would be hitting you time to the butterfly's wings. And that was a very clever way to create this experience without you having to wear gear. And, you know, you can imagine how that might be used in a theme park or a movie or something like that, right? And uh, and the, the, the same guy who's working on that is now working on Google's Project Jacquard, which is the idea of making fabric, the Smart fabric, fabric you're wearing, in, yeah, an in interface, right? And then the second thing is people said, look, it is a step away from virtual reality where you are wearing something that totally occludes your vision where you have to go into a special lab where you're not interacting naturally with other people where you can't see you can't touch the way you normally would you're in this fantasy world that you know is a fantasy world this is a way of being mixed being in one world and another at the same time right and so they said that's the power of augmented reality but there's a lot of tuning that needs to happen before it's very convincing and also to be honest before people figure out what they want from it i don't think anybody quite agrees how we're going to going to use it yet because there's a lot of companies that just want to give you information do the overlay on your vision be like here are reviews about this store that you're passing yes which is a you know low level area of augmented reality to a certain extent or use it in in industry it was it was uh, the other day i ran into a woman who said uh, her pediatrician is using it at the doctor's office to record interactions with patients um i've heard of farmers using it i know it has a lot of warehouse and industrial uses so like it sends instructions to you it seems to be uh, at least it's being s- sold first as a as a business or industrial use thing workwear I would be remiss without going back and talking about virtual reality, yes. which you referenced yes, before. Yes. Uh, actually, like when you talked about sort of that lived-in augmented reality thing, uh, I participated in this project, uh, I think it was last year, it might be a year and a half ago, called Birdly, which used a VR helmet, but you were strapped into this device that made you flap your wings. Wow. And it had a fan in front of it that would vary. So you could like tilt up and fly like a bird, but you had the goggles on to give you that immersive experience. Wow. And so it was like multiple sensory inputs coming together. And while it wasn't perfect, we were, I was flying over San Francisco, it wasn't perfect because the imagery, the, the visual presence didn't really take hold. It was amazing because it combined multiple factors together. Yeah. And um, uh, where I want to go with this is in virtual reality, we're starting to see the technology really ramp up very quickly with you know Oculus launching this year. Uh, and a number of academic projects really pursuing that space. I was wondering if you'd give us a, a sense of can this sort of work in perception really translate to that virtual world in a way that resonates back into real life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think so. Yes. Um, I I had two kind of um, big experiences with the virtual world when I was researching this book. So uh, so one of the first ones was going to an Air Force base in Colorado, Buckley Air Force Base, to see how it was being used um, on soldiers before they deployed to war. Uh, and the idea was, could putting people in a virtually stressful or traumatic situation before they deploy help prevent them from developing post-traumatic stress disorder later? Meaning like they would just be prepped and have sort of more resilience psychologically? Yeah. yeah. So the idea was to to expose people to stressful, traumatic situations beforehand using the guidance of kind of a virtual counselor 
who would pop up in the the VR simulation, give you advice about controlling stress, controlling your anxiety. Um, And the idea is uh, basically if you can experience it beforehand, when the real thing happens, will you be better at controlling stress and anxiety? And I hate asking, well, like, tell me the answer on a science podcast, yes, but tell okay. me the answer. Okay, so we don't we don't know the answer to this phase of the experiment yet. They were just deploying when I was there, but I can tell you that it has this has been shown to work with people who already have PTSD. It's been shown to reduce their symptoms. So it's already worked for, for many years on soldiers who've already deployed, who've been to battle, who've been in stressful situations, and then go through these uh, simulations called virtual Iraq, virtual Afghanistan, even virtual Vietnam. There's a virtual Vietnam. And what they do is they relive traumatic experiences under the guidance of a therapist. So their therapist is actually the one who's driving the VR simulation. In a way, this is just, a, this is an advanced form of cognitive social behavioral theory. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it's the, the, the name they use is exposure therapy. People have been doing it in office settings for years. So the idea is, you know, if you're afraid of spiders, first you talk about spiders with your therapist, then maybe you look at some pictures of spiders. Eventually you see some real spiders. The idea is facing the thing that you fear without any harm coming to you, robs that fear of its power. We did an episode on PTSD earlier this year where we talked a lot about exposure therapy, and it's mostly done in a way that has you relive these memories. But what you're talking about, it it basically suggests that VR was in a place that it tr- tricked, tricked isn't the right word, tricked your your senses to be believable enough that this would have a lasting impact. Yeah, I would I would say tricked. I would say you can trick the mind into healing. And, and you know, some of the VR researchers I talked to said, look, our brains have only had to cope with computers and screens for a few decades. The brain did not evolve to tell the difference between a real spider and a virtual spider. So when you see the virtual spider, you react to it as, as though it's real. And when you are back in a traumatic situation, you react to it as though you're, you're really there. And the labs, just like you were saying, are, are much more complete wraparound sensory experience than they used to be. You know, there's probably a lot of people in this audience who've been in VR simulations where it was just the goggles and Maybe it seemed kind of hokey. Maybe there was a lot of lag time. Um, I remember being in VR experiences that looked wildly pixelated. Um, uh, one, of, one of the guys, the guy who runs this experiment, Dr. Uh, Skip Rizzo, told me he remembers getting stuck in a wall his first time <laughs> in VR, you know. Um, but now they can do things like uh, they can vibrate the floor. They have like a base shaker under the floor that vibrates it. So it simulates, you know, a, a, a rocket attack or driving a Humvee. Um, they can pump odors in. And these are odors that are really resonant for somebody who's actually been in a war zone. So it's like diesel and sweat and garbage. Um uh, Skip was talking to me about um, maybe he'll use a heat lamp to kind of mimic the feeling of being in a desert. He said the only thing they can't figure out is taste. He's, he said maybe we'll just feed him a spoonful of sand. I don't know, right? <laughs> but so so what's different in this phase of experimentation is instead of asking people to relive a trauma, they were going to see if they could pre-live it. Yeah, I, I totally follow. Yeah. It's... So So the idea is it has to be real enough that if it happens to you, you remember it, you remember how to cope with it, you're less resilient to trauma, you're more resilient to trauma. Are there people pushing the boundaries even further than that? We're talking about still a relationship where you enter a virtual world, but it's a virtual world that makes sense to you because it's Afghanistan or Iraq or a place that you have some concept of that obeys the laws of physics as we understand it. Can we even go beyond that and have, have us sort of use virtual reality to take our sensory uh, into another world, like where I'm a bird or I live in a 
in a world that has me, you know, really change human behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So the second half of my journey, so my my time with Skip Rizzo's lab, they're in this hyper real, hardcore environment. Their scenarios are meant to look and feel really, they're meant to, to mimic things people have actually experienced. Then I went to Jeremy Balenson's lab at Stanford University. This is the virtual human interaction lab. And his lab is just like magic realism. They play with and stretch the boundaries of what you can experience and what your body should be like all the time. So they put me in a bunch of essentially alternative bodies. This was, this, they, the, describe an alternative okay. body. <laughs> so, so the term that they work with is homuncular flexibility. That's the scientific term. And the idea is, can you learn to control a body that's not yours? And they're playing with this idea that Jaron Lanier, the, you know, godfather of virtual reality and Jeremy Balenson's friend and mentor asked a long time ago where he said, imagine you're in virtual reality and you're a, a lobster, right? Lobster has eight arms. So uh, you can control arms one and two with your own arms. How do you control the other arms? Right? So it's not just I see the world through the vision of a lobster, right. but it's human vision at, right. in a lobster. It's like I have to actually move as a lobster would move? Yes, you have to move as a lobster would move. So, okay. So one of the things they had me do was they gave me a third arm. Yeah. And so the question was, how quickly would I learn how to control this third arm? They gave me, so they gave me these uh, infrared controllers that I was wearing on my two wrists and they put me in the simulation and they basically just said, go. There was no training on how to use this third arm. In, in the VR simulation, the third arm stuck right out of my chest and it was longer than the other arms. And they gave me a task. There were all of these cubes in front of me that would light up. And some of the cubes were close enough that I could reach them with my real right hand, and some were close enough that I could reach them with my real left hand. But the ones in the middle were so far away, I could only reach them with this virtual hand. And they said, okay, tap the cube, right? And all of us were prepared for this to be hard, for this to be some kind of mental math I was going to have to figure out. I don't know how I did it, but I just did it. You know, the real right wrist and the real left wrist somehow moved in combination that I could control this imaginary third wrist and touch that cube. It just happened. That's wild. Yeah. Within seconds. And in fact, they found out most people can learn how to do that within five minutes. So I was fast, but everybody's fast, right? And so that does indicate a certain plasticity of the brain that is like well beyond what we sort of associate to it to yeah. a certain extent. And but one of the things they're trying to test is, okay, uh, do you react to it like it's a, a body part or like it's a tool, right? So how do you feel about it? Do you actually accept the third arm as part of your own? And one of the things that they did to me is they said, okay, we're going to take the blocks away. We're going to put this bullseye in the center of the air. We want you to touch the center of the bullseye. So, so okay, yeah, fine, I did it. And then all of a sudden there's this huge flash of light, which my brain automatically interprets as, my hand is on fire, right? And I flinched. I actually drew back and kind of yelled because instantly my brain made that connection. That's part of my body and it's in danger. And it, it just happened instantly. I'll give you another example, a different kind of example. So Jeremy's lab is really interested in this idea of social good. Can these virtual experiences that you have translate into your real life? Can they affect the way you behave in the real world? And they started out doing these very kind of simple but very um, kind of mind-blowing experiments where they would make changes to your virtual avatar and then they would test you to see how you were acting in the real world. So they would do things like they'd make you a little bit taller 
And then they would give you a kind of a fake dating website and they'd ask you to pick people you wanted to date. <laughs> and the, the people. That seems almost cruel. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they weren't real people. But they, the, the people who had been made taller in the virtual world picked like hotter looking people yeah. to date. And the people who had been made less attractive in the virtual world became more likely to lie about their height. Did. Did that linger with you? The 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 sort of less isn't isn't quite the right word, but the the kind of the feeling of being in that that study and and what it was really poking at the third arm study. Yeah. Um, it kind of made me think. I I really started to think. What if this is actually a, a job skill someday? What if I have to wear some kind of helmet and do things with multiple arms? Which which actually Jeremy Bellance had said is is not a a, a, a you know an unthinkable idea. He said. For example, you know, like the best drone pilot operator, why is she only flying one plane at a time? You know, he had all these ideas about a group body. What if you could have multiple people controlling different aspects of one virtual body? Or what if one person can control many virtual bodies? Um, in what the chapter, uh, chapter we didn't talk about, I'll just briefly say I watched a, a surgeon teleoperate, and the surgical device she was operating had three arms and a camera. She only has two human arms. She could only drive two of those arms at a time. If she wanted to drive the third arm, she either had to put one down or call in somebody else to, to drive the other arm, right? But why couldn't she actually be driving all of those arms at the same time, right? That's a pretty practical thing. I mean, it's hard to picture exactly how that would work, but I, I understand what you're, what you're getting at. There's no reason... Uh, if we could learn how to do it, it would take a lot of time and effort. Yeah. But the same amount of time and effort that went into the training of that surgeon to get to the point where they could do it with two hands. Yeah, absolutely. Some some of the mechanical engineers I talked to said, yeah, but what if you could drive that third arm? Um, what if the third arm is kind of semi-intelligent and it's it's interacting with you by touching you somewhere else on your body, not, on, not in your hands because your hands are busy, but it's maybe conveying that information about what it's doing to your foot or to another part of your arm. There might be ways to do this. So now, now the question is, okay, so do these virtual experiences linger, you know, more than a few days, more than a few seconds? One of my first experiences with this lab was they virtually aged me. Uh, this is not in the book. This was a previous article that I did. They, I was like 32 at the time, and they virtually aged me to be 72. And they had me interact with the older version of myself. And then they did these follow-up studies to see how likely I was to save money. And the idea was, what if we could use this as a way to incentivize people to save for retirement, right? Which would be a very long-lasting... I don't want to participate in that study. <laughs> it was weird. It was very weird. I I'm telling you, I didn't age well. <laughs> so when you zoom out of... Uh, I mean, there's a really broad field you're describing here. Yeah. But when you zoom out, do you feel like any of these crossed a boundary, like an ethical boundary that you're like, we should not be exploring this, or that goes beyond... Uh, an, an area that, that feels comfortable because it starts to invade in sort of the uh, quote unquote the natural world of the other people that live around me. Yeah. So a lot of people I talked to raised questions like this. So there, there are a couple ways to attack this. Um, you know, so the, the grinders, the biohackers I would talk to would say, you know, they have this concept. A lot of people have a concept of body sovereignty, which is I can do what I want to my body because it's mine. Nobody else. Totally understand. And, and you know, the, the courts have uh, endorsed this in the United States. So, you know, all of our abortion-related privacy laws are related to this. Um, the courts have ruled that tattooing is a First Amendment right. You know, there are certain uh, protections we actually have in society for this. And... Uh, one of the things I thought a lot about was actually genetic engineering, um, which raised very similar ethical issues. 
But there the issue was, are you making a change to your body that you could pass on to somebody else? And when we're talking about this kind of biohacking, no, you know, it's not, it's not genetic. So, uh, so I thought a lot about that. Uh, for, for me, I think some of the resonant questions people raised are the idea of altering your perception in such a subtle way that you don't know that it's happening anymore. You're not aware of what kind of choices it's making for you or what kind of information it might, might be leaving out of the information that it's streaming to you. I think one of the very thoughtful arguments that I heard was from Adam Wood, who's from a group called Stop the Cyborgs, which kind of organized in opposition to Google Glass. And one of his big questions is about the idea of the network. So the idea is if you're connected to a group of uh, other people who are altering your behavior or your thinking by giving you a thumbs up or thumbs down, telling you where to go, telling you um, this is good, this is bad, it might be altering your behavior in a way that you're not consciously paying attention to anymore. And the thing about drug use and the thing about watching a, a movie or reading a book is the story ends, the trip ends, and you know when it's going to end. And when you're wearing something, then you're wearing it continuously. Maybe it's always in front of your eye. Maybe it's actually in your body. You know, the trip doesn't end. It's, it's always with you. And it's very subtle. Its influence is very subtle. So that was a, that was a good thing to think about. And then, you know, another argument was, okay, as for-profit companies start to make these devices, we don't really know what their powers are, what their limitations are, all of that. How they're leveraging the information that's being supplied and gathered. Right. Who, totally understand. Who wrote that algorithm and what they left in and what they left out? And, and they're not going to share that information. They have a proprietary interest in not sharing that IP. Um, and so some very smart people said to me, uh, look, your only choice as a consumer is going to be, do I buy it or not? Or maybe um, not even do I buy it or not. Uh, I spoke with uh, Gregor Wolbring, who's a disabilities and abilities scholar from the University of Calgary in Canada, who pointed out that a lot of technology use isn't a choice anymore, right? You know, or, or at least you can, you can make a choice not to use the internet. You can make a choice not to use a cell phone. You can make a choice not to use a computer, but there are consequences. So, you know, he said, what if this augmented reality gear becomes a job requirement or a school requirement? This harkens back to our conversation with Kevin Kelly, where he talked about technology having a desire and want in all of this itself and a, and a personality. Thinking about all of this stuff, how do you personally feel about uh, this movement to enhance human perception? Do you embrace it? Do you feel like it's inevitable? Is there an acceleration towards this uh, that we need to, as a society, investigate it further? Well, so I, I'm a reporter, and I went into this mostly as an observer. You know, my interest is always kind of saying, hey, people, this is what's out there. You know, this is where I've been. These are the people that I met. This is what they're saying. This is what they're thinking. Um, so I, d I didn't really take a, a hard line on whether or not anybody should do this or shouldn't do this. I, I perfectly understand people who want to say, nope, 100% natural human, uh, nothing, no, no electronic gadgets here. And I also actually really understand people who say we're already all, all cyborgs, just accept it. You know, I had a lot of thoughts about the ways that I've already augmented my own body. I wear eyeglasses. Um, I've been vaccinated. You know, there are diseases I don't get. Um, uh, I take vitamins. That's a body augment. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people said to me, "Any anything you do, you put clothes on and you're a cyborg because that's a technology, right? Um, I think in the end, what I ended up resolving for myself anyway, my own interpretation is we are just a curious species. We are an engineering hacker maker species with an impulse to improve. And that's reflected in everything from education to art to engineering 
It's, it's kind of a human impulse. And the thing that is different now, I think, is that we can make these differences so intimately in the body, so intimately in the mind, in a way that we might not realize we're doing it anymore. Well, speaking for myself, at least, I welcome my cyborgian future. <laughs> Are you? Do you consider yourself a cyborg? I do, to a certain extent. Okay, why? Because I'm already utilizing devices, and I have a desire to go in that direction. Ah. Okay, what do you want? What's your cyborg enhancement that you want? <laughs> I think I, I want, uh, I focus on vision first, first yeah. and foremost. I want to be able to uh, see a wider field of, of my life because I've always lived with glasses. And I think I, I see the world um, uh, it, it more clearly because of glasses, but I don't see the world as it, as it exists. That's awesome. Kara Platoni, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. That was really interesting. She has such a way with being able to explain some of these kind of really existential ideas uh, in a way that's just accessible and understanding and I and, and understandable. So I really enjoyed that aspect, a lot of the aspects of the conversation. And I guess what kind of stuck with me is this kind of um, this idea that if we don't have a word for it, we do we really experience it, which you know, I had never really considered before because I think of our perceptions as being pre-verbal that, you know, just because we can't describe them verbally doesn't mean that we don't have that perceptual experience. I thought that that was a really interesting point. And I brought it up because she was talking about, you know, essentially trying to taste fat. And I'm like, oh, well, how do you describe fat? Uh, But I think she made a good point about umami. It's like we didn't talk about umami before we knew what it was. Uh, lots of cultures knew what it was. It was probably, you know, inherent in our food, but we had no way of talking about it. So there was no sort of cultural recognition of it. And I think it's that recognition that we're really talking about, not the, you know, quantifiable basis here. That's a limitation. Yeah. And so that's why I guess I wonder, you know, to what extent, you know, I, I always love that kind of um philosophical game of is the color red that I perceive the same in my brain as it is in your brain and so forth. And, you know, it's always a really fun thought experiment to do. And, you know, that's really at the core of the consciousness debate, right? The subjective experience. How do we observe it? How do we characterize it? What is the neural basis, et cetera? These are all the the big questions in neuroscience. And, you know, I, I, I do think that it's it's a really interesting topic. And I think it does change both with the advent of technology and even with different different parts of our lives you know as as our senses degrade as we get older our experience change changes and so forth and so there, you know it's fascinating I, I totally agree would you get enhanced for sure yeah i mean I, I guess i would get enhanced in ways but you know it's funny because even as I say that, I remember some really great stories from Oliver Sacks' canon talking about patients who get their hearing, you know, back or their sight back. And sometimes it's not as as nice as we would have thought. Like, for example, if you don't have vision for a long time and then you are given your sight, um, it can be very disturbing because you don't have the cortical computations in the back of your brain that you need to make sense of that stimulation. And it can take a long time for you to develop and learn that and along the way 
there's emotional consequences. Yeah, I mean, it, it can literally physically make you feel sick. I mean, just like the way, you know, I mean, virtual reality is going to have some of that same stuff, although it gets, I guess it's getting better and better. Have you gotten your Oculus Rift? No, yet? chips Not in yet. March. Oh, okay. okay. So soon. But, but I will say, like, I, you know, I don't want to make this pure sci-fi by saying, do you want to be enhanced? And magically it works. You're right to talk about the downsides because it also very janky right now, lack of a better term. Like, it's really rough around the edges. But somebody needs to be part of that movement. And I think in the interview, I said, oh, I totally want to be a cyborg. And now I've had a little bit of time away from the interview. I'm on the other side now. I kind of don't want to be part of that. I don't think I have that. Um, adventurer spirit that the people that she really portrays in the book seem to have a commonality around. Like they're willing to really embrace uh, a level of, of of sort of sensory input that can radically shape their life and have impacts you know across their life. Not just like oh I'm going to you know potentially see this you know other bit of the spectrum that I couldn't see before. But what that means long term I think is. We don't know. But I want to say I'm a huge advocate for this group exploring this edge, especially the augmented and virtual reality edge that we talked about. I'm still floored by the experiment with uh, soldiers, like pre-leaving scenarios. It seems like that le- that use of technology uh, to sort of, you know, in, in, you know, leveraging the brain plasticity that we have, it seems like a great utilization. And I want to see that done more. I mean, it has potentially profound implications just, you know, for so many different aspects of human cognition. Um, and, you know, the, the truth is, is that technology is already changing, whether you like it or not, how you function. I mean, there's a, a, a cute little study about how Google has changed the way we remember things. We no longer now remember most details, but we remember where to search for that information. So it is fundamentally changing how we're using our memory system. Oh, I got to remember to Google that. That's cool. <laughs> So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Anonymous. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, pictures from your ski vacation or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiring minds that's the great courses plus.com slash inquiring minds inquiring minds is produced by biohackers adam isaac in cooperation with the climate desk our music is provided by award-winning producer rian chien our research assistant is caitlin smith and we're your hosts i'm andre viscontis you can find me on twitter at andre vis and i'm kishore hari at science quiche see you next week BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.